All right, so Independence Day, I have a picture I really like. Let me show you this. Um, I'm going to give you a couple of stats about Independence Day. Hardly ever does Sunday fall on the 4th of July. And when it does, every pastor thinks, is anybody going to be there? And so thank you for being here. You are, uh, I asked God, and he said you get bonus points. So good on you. You got bonus points for coming on, on the 4th of July. Good for you. Um, the first celebration of uh, Independence Day happened uh, the second year, of, or first year of Independence, 1777. In Philadelphia, there was a parade. They did fireworks, really interesting, and they had a 13-cannon salute, which was kind of interesting. But it didn't become an official holiday until about 1870. Um, one of the things that we do on Independence Day, according to the Hearth, Patio, and Barbecue Association, is the 4th is the number one day in America for grilling. So if you're going to grill today, uh, good on you. Uh, we are going to spend, according to this particular organization, $6.5 billion on food for the 4th of July. That's a lot of money. That's crazy. Um, we will consume around 150 million hot dogs. Yeah. One lone, yeah, uh, Dagny, just you. The Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest, that happens today, by the way. It started in 1916. Uh, does anybody know who won that last year? You should know. Joey Chestnut, yes. Uh, does anybody know how many he ate in 10 minutes last year? What? Wow, Ronnie. Um... Uh, Ronnie has uh, Joey Chestnut's poster up uh, at his house. He really likes that guy. Well, good for you, man. Good. All right. So today we're talking about Passover, which a few weeks ago, it's really interesting. When we were about to burn our note, I thought, I'll look at the festivals in the Old Testament, and we'll see, you know, what, you know, why did God do those? Well, there's seven of them. I, I kind of... I've been a pastor a long time, about 30 years, a little over 30 years, and I don't think I'd ever really noticed that there were these... I knew, I knew about them. I'd heard of Passover. I'd heard of these others, the Feast of Tabernacles and that kind of thing. But I really never looked at them. And so we did that. I did that sermon, and I looked at four of them, kind of these four that we're going to look at again today, or one of the four that we look at today. And it was like, man, Jesus is all in these feasts. It's really sort of amazing. And so... Uh, a while back, I did the last three, and then we're circling back, and we're doing the first four feasts in July. And so, Passover is the first feast of uh, these these sort of celebrations that God said to His people, "Hey, I want you to commemorate this. This is really, really important." And so, um, Passover was it commemorates uh, basically Israel becoming. A nation. It, it, it celebrates their independence from being slaves in Egypt. Now, you all probably all know this story, but if you do, just bear with me just a little bit because we kind of have to set it up uh, some in order to understand Passover. The Jews um, found themselves in Egypt. There had been a famine in their land, and so they go to Egypt to get supplies. Joseph was a helper of Pharaoh, and then Joseph dies, and the Pharaohs don't know about Joseph anymore, and they enslave the Jewish people. And for over 400 years, they're slaves. Now, having never been a slave, other than when my dad made me till, uh, by the way, it's really funny, my mom's here, but when, when I was a boy, 
a teen, uh, we had a garden as big as this room. I mean, my daddy planted everything. We planted turnips. I mean, we had it all. And uh, mostly because he had free labor. Uh, he, he had me tilling every week. I would till and till and till. And I remember going off to college, and when I came back, uh, his garden was about as big as this cup. Uh, it's like, okay, well, you don't have free labor. So the only slavery I was ever under uh, was, uh, and I say that obviously uh, in jest, but you're talking about people who not only are they enslaved, that's all they've ever known, that's all their parents ever knew, that's all their parents' parents ever knew, their Parents, grandparents, if we go by the typical 40 years is one generation, that's 10 generations of, of people who had never known freedom. And they cry out to God. They're God's chosen people. And it says to me, there's, there's a lesson here I think we really need to understand. God's timing and our timing aren't the same. And sometimes there's a purpose to pain. And being enslaved wasn't something that God just immediately took care of. In fact, that, that is maybe the, the, the greatest understatement of all times. He did not only immediately take care of it, it took over 400 years for him to get around to delivering his people. God knows what he's doing, and I don't understand that completely, but I believe it was part of God's plan. And so God hears the cries of his people who are enslaved in Egypt, and he decides to do something. And so he raises up a, a deliverer, a guy who can help. His name was Moses. And you all probably have seen the movie The Ten Commandments, and you know a little bit of this story. But God goes to Moses and says, I want you to go to Pharaoh. You're going to be my mouthpiece to Pharaoh, and I'm going to, we're going to deliver my people out of slavery in Egypt. And God's plan devised was to um, inflict plagues on Egypt, Ten, by the way. It's an interesting number. There, numbers play an interesting role in Scripture, and so there are different numbers mean different things. Ten is a number of completeness. And so ten plagues is basically, <laughs> he plagued them completely is kind of how it works. And the first plague was he, uh, he did something to the Nile. This is what the Lord says. Uh, and so this is, uh, this is Moses speaking to Pharaoh after he had gotten the word from God. By this you'll know that I'm the Lord with the staff that is in my hand. This is Moses talking to Pharaoh. I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die. The river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink the water. And whether the Nile literally becomes blood or not, I don't exactly know. I did a lot of reading on that and there's sort of a debate around it. Mostly what they've come to the conclusion is if it didn't literally become blood, and perhaps it didn't, it, it became uh, undrinkable and the fish died. And for God to strike the Nile, that was, it, it was sort of the, one of the worst things that you could do because the Nile was the livelihood of Egypt. In fact, they had a saying, Egypt is a Nile and Nile is Egypt. And Egypt, you'll have to re remember, had uh, different gods for everything. They had this pantheon of gods. And I've got a picture of a couple of them. Uh, they all kind of look similar. They all have, they're all kind of standing sideways and they got a head on them. Um, the first one there, let me get his name right, is, um, let me see, he is the god, uh, K-H-N-U-M, Kanum. He is the god of the Nile. And so when when our God strikes the Nile, he is basically repudiating that God. 
The other god there is uh, N-E-Q-T, uh, Necht uh, is how I would say it, I guess. Uh, that was the goddess of the frogs. She was also the goddess of resurrection. And so every one of these plagues that God inflicts on the Egyptians addresses or kind of afflicts one of their gods. The idea is that if your god is so great, then he should be able to overcome uh, uh, Israel's god, and, and he can't. So there were the god of the, the flies, and that, that sort of addressed or repudiated Beelzebub. That was one of their gods. And there was the god of, of livestock, Apis. And so there was a, one of the plagues was toward animals and the death of animals. And one you probably know, darkness addressed or repudiated their god, uh, their goddess Ray, the, the goddess of the sun. And on and on it went. And these plagues did a couple of things. I think it's really important to understand that. Number one, it was a calling Egypt to repent. Calling Egypt to repent. And I don't know about you, I don't know if you ever thought about the plagues or any of that very much. I've often wondered, how could you get to the tenth plague and not realize that God is powerful? Or God is more powerful? Because he's already just like, he's crushing your gods. Wouldn't you think they, they would notice and, and I, was, I was thinking about that. I thought about us coming through a pandemic. Um, and this isn't a commentary on, you, you know, what you should have done, what we could have done, what we did. No, it's not that. What I'm saying is this. We've come through a pandemic, and it's almost as if now most restrictions are off or all restrictions are off, and we sort of, we don't think about it anymore. I mean, it was... It was front and center for a while, and when you can't buy and sell, and when you can't do what you want to do, then it's really problematic, and when you can't find toilet paper, it's a big deal. But once it's over, you kind of don't think about it anymore. I don't dwell on it anymore. I don't really think about that much. Uh, when I was a kid, there was gas shortages. I don't think about gas shortages anymore, because it's just not something that we deal with. And so there was a plague, and it would last for a a few days, and then it was over. And, and you can see how we, we adjust, we adapt. And so there was a plague, and there were flies everywhere, and it lasted three to five, seven days, and then they're not there anymore. It's like, okay, well, we're through that. And there were lice, and that's horrible, and, and they were everywhere, and then all of a sudden they're not everywhere. And it's like, oh, okay, well, we got through that. And then there was this plague, and it lasts for a few days, and then we don't have it anymore, and now we get over it. And so, for nine plagues, God has tried to get Egypt's attention. I think He wanted them to repent. He also was calling Israel to believe. Now, if you're enslaved and your mama and daddy was enslaved and all your people was enslaved, uh, were enslaved, then now all of a sudden, you have to be convinced that God can actually do this for you. Because he hadn't done it for you for 400 years. So why should I believe he's going to do it for me now? And so the plagues helped with that. It showed God's power. And so I think there was sort of this dual purpose. But the tenth plague was the harshest. Now, it was going to be a line of demarcation. And, and God wants Moses to know this. And so the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, his brother, in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. This is going to make everything different. 
we divide our calendar into B.C. and A.D. There is a, you know, before Christ and then the year of our Lord. Those are our distinctions, our demarcations. And so we do that even today. For, for the Jews, it was going to be um, before Passover and after Passover, before the tenth plague and after the tenth plague, because the tenth plague was going to say, was going to cause them to be a nation. It was going to be kind of the instigation toward being a nation. And we think, you know, July 4th, we're a new nation. Well, no, we declared independence and then we had to earn that independence. Well, so basically Passover was declaring independence, but they still had to earn it and had to go into the land and and capture it and all that stuff. And we sort of have that even in our own spiritual lives. Look at what it says in uh, in 2 Corinthians. Whoever is a believer in Christ is a new creation. Uh, The old way of living has disappeared. The new way has come into existence. There's an old me before Christ and there's a me after Christ. And so I was a sinner and now I'm a saint. And the tenth plague, and you all probably know this, was when God was going to send an angel and he was going to kill the firstborn of every family and every animal in the nation of Egypt. There was a God provides a way, but this was going to be severe. And sometimes I think, man, it's really severe. Well, okay. But, but look at Pharaoh. Remember when Moses was a baby, they had to hide him away because Pharaoh made an order. He gave an order to his people. Every Hebrew boy, not just firstborn, but every boy, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, let the girls live. And so there is a principle in Scripture that we must understand it applies to most everything. It's called the principle of sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow. And so God says to Moses, On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son, every firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. And then he makes a way. Interestingly enough, in Exodus 11, God says to Moses, go tell Pharaoh what I'm about to do. This doesn't catch Pharaoh by surprise. This putting blood on the doorpost was available to all people, as far as we know. I mean, it wasn't just restrictive. And so God made a way, and Pharaoh chose not to listen. And God sometimes makes a way for us, and we don't always choose to listen. And God says to Moses... Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of each month, uh, uh, I'm sorry, of this month, the first month, called Nisan, by the way, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals are chosen, uh, to be chosen are uh, to be um, a year old. They're male without defect, and you must take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month. And when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at midnight, they all do it at the same time. And then they are to take the, uh, some of the blood, put it in the sides and the door, uh, of, their, uh, of their door frame and the top uh, of the door post. And so on the sides and on the top of their door post. We call this substitutionary atonement. That's where somebody pays where I should pay. Uh, I used to get that, uh, speaking of my dad, I used to get that a lot. Uh, we'd go out to eat and daddy would pay. Uh, it worked out great. He wanted to pay and I didn't want to pay, so it was perfect. So uh, sometimes somebody else has to pay. Somebody's got to pay. And so God was making a way, and it was brilliant what God did here. He, did you notice he said, pick your lamb on the 10th 
sacrifice it on the 14th and take care of it in the four-day period. Now, there are reasons around this. Uh, scholars believe that the four days was symbolic of the 400 years, sort of a day for every 100 years of slavery. But more important for me, at least, to what I thought, gosh, this is really interesting, they would keep that lamb in their home for four days. So they would bring it in, you would care for it. Uh, if it had been my house with my daughters, they would have named it because they name everything. I mean, it was like uh, they named every animal. They name animals they don't even own. Uh, we've got uh, uh, my daughter Mallory had a, a, a fish and she named it Big Lips. I mean, they had names for everything. You know, just lots of just lots of names. And so uh, I remember we lived in Kentucky and there was a, a a little calf behind our house and they named it Bunny. I mean, my daughters aren't bright, but they name stuff. You know, uh, very very namey uh, with things. And so. Think through the process. God says, pick on the 10th, uh, execute on the 14th, and that four days in your house with this lamb, now all of a sudden that becomes personal. Uh, That lamb isn't some lamb in a field. That's your lamb. That's the lamb you're taking care of. That's the lamb you're feeding in your home. That's the lamb every time it bleats. You are reminded that something innocent is going to pay for your sin. It, it's really brilliant. It is a brilliant picture that God paints for His people. Somebody has to pay. And it's this object lesson. This lamb, innocent as it is, done nothing to deserve this penalty, is paying that price for your sin. Now, Passover was different than every day. Every day in Jerusalem, they offered animals as a sacrifice. At 9 o'clock and at 3 o'clock, an animal would be sacrificed. Every day, 365 days a year, this happened. Unless it was a a holy day like Passover or something else. But every day that wasn't prescribed where other animals were being sacrificed, this happened at 9 and at 3. And when it happened at 9 and at 3, the high priest or one of the priests would blow the shofar or... And everybody would know if you're in Jerusalem. But here's what happens if you're like me. uh, If something happens all the time and it's just happening all the time, I don't even notice it anymore. Uh, Miriam uh, is Swiss, and so we would vacation occasionally. And uh, I mean, we've been maybe twice, two or three times in my lifetime. We would go, and her aunt owned a home in a little town. And houses in Switzerland in that part uh, are built tall. And so you kind of stack them. There's not a lot of land, so you stack them high. And we were on the very top floor, and I just, I'll hardly ever forget this, because uh, I remember the beams were about this level, height, and solid, and if you hit them, it hurt. And uh, I had that happen a few times. And so if you looked out the window, right across the street was the church, and the church bells chimed every quarter hour, all day long. So, if it was 12.15, it would go, bing! And if it was 12.30, it would go, bing, bing! And if it was 12.45, guess what it would do? Right, yeah, all right, good. That's good, you're tracking, I like it. And then when it was on the hour, it was, bong, bong. So at midnight, oh, it was a party. Uh, you know, it was a party up there in that, where it, your eye level with the bells, you know. What's really interesting is, you have jet lag the first time you're there, and you kind of sleep through it a little bit. Second day, you notice it. By the third day, it's sort of, you stop noticing. 
we, we have this ability. And so all these sacrifices were being made, and we have this ability to sort of ignore it. And if you weren't in Jerusalem, you, you would never even know it happened because it only happened in Jerusalem. But Passover was different. He, he, God was saying, I want you to really think about this is a personal thing now. There's a sacrifice being made for you, and the sacrifice being made for you doesn't deserve it, but it's personal. We read verses like, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. And we read that, and it's easy for us to not understand that sacrifice. Yes, it is for the world, but it also is for me. And it's for you. And it's personal. And so Passover made it personal. And God paints these pictures through these feasts. Let me show you how the Passover lamb and Jesus are the same. I want to show you. The Passover lamb had to be perfect. The Bible tells us that Jesus was perfect. Even Judas, who betrayed Christ, said, I have betrayed innocent blood. On the night Jesus was betrayed, then he stood before Pilate, and Pilate's wife has a dream, and Pilate's wife sends this message to Pilate, and she says, don't have anything to do with that man, he is innocent. And Pilate examines Jesus, and his very words found in Luke 23 are, I find no fault in this man. Perfect sacrifice. Another interesting one is no bones were to be broken. God prescribed for the Passover lamb to be eaten. And uh, uh, it, it was to be roasted, not boiled, really important, by the way. And they would roast this, um, this lamb. They would flay it, and they would, this is really, really interesting. They would put it on a pomegranate sticks as a skewer, and they would make a, a cross, and they would flay the animal on a cross, and they would uh, roast it over a fire. And none of the bones were to be broken. And really, in crucifixion, when... If you wanted to expedite the process, the way crucifixion works is basically this. You are hung on a tree, um, you, your hands are nailed, your feet are nailed, and the only way to catch your breath is to raise up. They had a little footstool there. is to raise yourself up to catch your breath, and then you would slump, and you couldn't breathe, and eventually you died from lack of oxygen. You just couldn't breathe. Eventually you got tired of lifting up. It wouldn't take long for me to get tired of doing this. Now, if they wanted to expedite the process, what they would do is they would break the legs of the people who were executed and so they could no longer push up and you would suffocate. The Roman soldiers were ordered to break the legs of the people crucified that day. Uh, if you'll recall, there were three. Jesus was in the middle. There was a thief on uh, both sides and the Roman Guards broke the legs of the thief, uh, the thief to Jesus' left and the thief to Jesus' right. But when they came to Jesus, they disobeyed orders. I don't know if they knew they were fulfilling prophecy or not, but they did. The lamb, the Passover lamb, was to be sacrificed at exactly 3 p.m. The Bible tells us that Jesus was, he expired, he gave up his spirit. At exactly 3 p.m. on the 14th day, the month of Nisan, the lamb was to be killed just outside the city gates in Jerusalem. The Bible tells us in 
that Jesus in John 19 was sacrificed just outside the city gates in Jerusalem. Passover, one of the things that you would do to prepare for Passover, if you were the father, you would go through a house, your house, and you would uh, take all of the leaven away. Leaven or uh, yeast, anything that would cause bread to rise. Uh, it was symbolic of sin. And so one of the tasks of the father was to find all the leaven. Basically how it worked was the women would clean and then the dad was supposed to go inspect. I'm sure that went over really well. Uh, but that's kind of how it worked. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but look at this text. Because Jesus also cleaned house. <laughs> really, really interesting. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out. This was during Passover week. Drove out all who were buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he says, it is written, my house, my house will be called a house of prayer. But you are making it a den of robbers. Really interesting. A couple more. When the lamb was sacrificed, by the word, the Hebrew, by the way, the word, uh, Hebrew word for sacrifice means to slit the throat. And that is where they would gather the blood. They would slit the throat of the lamb and they would collect the blood in a, a basin. And they were to take this blood and they were to use a hyssop branch. It's sort of, I don't know what it would relate to in, around here. It was a plant uh, and they would take this and they sort of used it as a paintbrush and they were to paint the blood on both side posts of the door and the top part is called the lintel and they would paint it there and when Jesus was on the cross he said I thirst and what's really interesting to me is they um, dipped a sponge in vinegar and they raised it to his mouth uh, using a hyssop branch I think that's interesting there were to be no leftovers of the Passover lamb and so uh, whoever came to uh, observe Passover with you you were to consume the whole lamb when Jesus died he was taken from the cross and he was hurriedly prepared and put into a tomb there was no sign of Jesus because he was placed in a borrowed tomb that night just like there was no sign of the Passover lamb because it had been eaten uh, I missed one it is finished According to some scholars, when the high priest would sacrifice at 3 o'clock outside the city gates, the Passover lamb, he would slit the throat of the lamb and he would say, it is finished. And when Jesus was on the cross, when he breathed his last, or as he was breathing his last, he said, it is finished. To put blood on the doorposts and the top of your door was a public display that you believed and there was really never a more public display than when Jesus was hung on a cross. Each family was to have its own lamb and for us we are personally, we personally make a decision to follow Christ. It's not a collective effort, it's something that we do for ourselves. But there are a couple of differences between the Passover lamb and Jesus and these are really important. The lamb couldn't choose his own fate, but Jesus could. In fact, Jesus says, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it, and there's a really great word, voluntarily. Voluntarily. The second thing, the Passover lamb covered sin. Jesus took sin away. In John it says, John saw Jesus coming toward him. This is John the Baptist, by the way, not the author of the book. Uh, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, I want to illustrate. 
I've, I got this chain from my buddy Case, and uh, it's dirty, and it got my shirt dirty, so he'll be getting a bill. Uh, but anyway, uh, all right, so it's, it's heavy. You can see it's heavy. In the Bible, it sometimes talks about sin being weighty. And so I thought, well, what, this is a pretty good illustration of the weight of sin. And so let's just put this around my neck. Now, I can feel it. Now, what happened when a Passover lamb was sacrificed is uh, it, it was covered. The sin was covered. So I brought this little shawl. that It's really a tablecloth that I cut up. Um, but that's just our little secret. And I cover my sin. Can you see it? It's still there. I could feel it. If I were to walk around all day with this, I would know it's there. And so when we offered, when a a lamb was offered, there was always the understanding that next year I would have to offer another lamb. But when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so, it's really important to understand taking away is better than covering. It's just better. That doesn't mean I don't sin anymore. It certainly doesn't mean that. But it does mean that weight isn't on me anymore. Forgiveness is immediate. And so Jesus understands the Passover. As a Jewish man, he would have partaken of Passovers all of his life, every 14th day of Nisan, every year, Jesus would have partaken. And so, his very last Passover became his very first communion. And the very last legitimate Passover became, Jesus morphed it into something else. Now, uh, this is a picture of the Last Supper, and uh, it really, um, it's not exactly accurate because they would have been reclining and that kind of thing, but since you know it, I thought I would tell you what a Passover meal looked like for Jesus. They would begin with a prayer, just like we do when we pray for a meal. Uh, We would pray, and, and Jesus would pray, and a typical prayer would be, it's very sort of, Uh, sanitary, sort of sterile, it would be, um, blessed are you, Lord God, creator of the universe. Not very personal, but that's what they would pray. Blessed are you, Lord God, creator of the universe, for what we are about to receive. If you ever go to Long John Silver's and you pray, God bless this food, uh, I'm about to receive, God laughs. So I just need to know that sometimes he doesn't listen. And they would offer thanks, and then they would have a glass of wine, and they would share it. The wine was one part wine, two parts warm water. Um, by the way, if you'll recall, when the soldiers came to break the legs of the people on the cross, they didn't break Jesus' legs, but they did do something. Do you recall what it was? Pierced his side, right? And what flowed out, do you remember? Blood, blood and water. Really interesting. And so... At a Passover meal, you would take, there would be four glasses of wine, all one part wine, two part warm water. There's a text in um, Exodus 6, 6 and 7 that talks about God's deliverance. And four times God says, I am going to deliver you. You're going to be my people. We're going to be a kingdom together. 
So they would take the first cup of wine, then they would, there would be a ceremonial washing. But it was also for cleanliness sake, because they ate with their hands before they were about to touch the food, they would wash their hands both ceremonially and figuratively, literally, they would wash their hands. This is likely where Jesus washed his disciples' feet during this time. Then they would take the bread. They would take the bread and they would dip it in bitter herbs. And it's not like bread, like we would have a loaf that was mounded, but it was flat bread. Something like um, you would have a cracker. It didn't rise because it was, it was made without yeast. They would eat this. It was almost like an appetizer, if you will. They would eat this bread dipped in bitter herbs. It was reminding them of their deliverance out of a bitter environment. Then they would sing. It's called the Hallel. It's where we get the word hallelujah from. The Hallel is uh, Psalm 113 through 118. All of those are the Hallel. Likely here they would sing the 113th and 114th Psalm. They would take a second cup of wine and then they would eat the lamb. They would eat all of it. It's the third cup of wine following the eating of the lamb. Now, I don't know about you, but we kind of blow through a meal. These would take forever. If you look at the last night of Jesus' life, he did a lot of teaching during this time. He, he washed the disciples' feet. Really interesting. They were arguing about who was going to be the greatest, and Jesus put on uh, the towel of a, a servant, and he washed their feet. He was showing them what it looked like to really lead. The third cup is likely where Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. After that, they would sing again the Hallel. There would be the fourth cup of wine, and then they would sing as they left. And Jesus changed it all. When you came in, you should have gotten your uh, little uh, communion cup with wafer on top. If you don't have that, you're welcome to go get one now because we're going to just now participate or partake in um, communion. There's some up here, yeah, if you didn't get, and there's some on the back table. If you're dexterous enough to pull off that little top part, I say bully to you. Good job. Way to go. We noted that in the Passover meal there was a time where the bread was broken. And Jesus now morphs, he changes the Passover meal into something different. The Bible tells us that Jesus took bread and he gave thanks. And I told you earlier that the prayer would be something like, um, blessed are you, Lord, our God, creator of the universe. But Jesus didn't seem to pray that way. You'll recall when his disciples said, teach us how to pray, Jesus said, um, our Heavenly Father. And so, I don't know this to be true, but it seems to me it makes most sense that Jesus would have made this much more personal. Father, we thank you for this bread, which you have given to us. And then it says he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples, just like me and you. And if you have your bread, he would have given it to you. And he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's do it now. And you know what's coming, so if you...
can peel the foil off of your cup, that would be great. The Bible tells us in the same way, after the supper, so after they've eaten the lamb, the third cup of wine, Jesus would have taken the cup and he would have given thanks again. Father, thank you for this fruit of the vine that you have given to us so generously. And then he said to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. A covenant is an agreement. We're making an agreement here. I give you my blood and you give me your life. It's a good trade. He's going to pay for our sins personally. He's going to do it for us. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. And then he would say, do this in remembrance of me. See, the original Passover was always pointing to Christ. Paul, who was a Jewish scholar, a, a, a brainiac, one of the smartest people who ever walked the planet, put it this way, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Once he started to see Christ the way uh, we get to see Christ, he could put the pieces together. Now, I'm going to close with a couple of things that are very exciting for me, and I want you to understand, these fall into the category of nobody knows, but wouldn't it be really cool if God did this? All right? So I'm going to give you some stuff. I'm not saying this is how it worked, but what I am saying is, wow, this kind of makes sense to me. So are you intrigued? Oh, well, let's be closed. Uh, No, I really want to give it to you. Okay, so. Luke chapter 2. You all know the Christmas story, right? It's found in Luke chapter 2. I know you all know that. Let me find it real quickly. Matthew, Mark. It's right after that. Oh, went too far. Luke 2. Talk amongst yourselves. I'll get there eventually. Okay, here we go. All right, here we go. Um, It says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Shepherds living out in the fields, nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Jesus was born in what town? You know? Bethlehem. Right, good job. Okay. The sacrifices were made in what town? Jerusalem. Great, you're killing it. Good job. Bethlehem and Jerusalem are about a little over five miles apart. Really close. So, We've always thought that the shepherds that mentioned here in Luke 2 were just common, ordinary shepherds. However, what I found out recently is uh, the fields around Bethlehem, which is very, in very close proximity to Jerusalem, there were, there were priestly shepherds keeping watch of the sheep that would become the sacrifices in Jerusalem. Now, the notion was, sometimes you'd bring a lamb in from, let's say Jesus was from Nazareth. That's a pretty good distance, you know, uh, several uh, tens of miles, about 100 miles. And, and it would be tough to get there with the lamb. And so what they would do is they would just purchase a lamb when they got to Jerusalem. And so they would raise these sheep in these fields near Bethlehem. In order, basically there were lambs being born to die. So Luke 2, perhaps, the message came to these priestly shepherds. 
not just regular, ordinary shepherds, but priestly shepherds. And then in verse 10 it says, The angel said to them, they were terrified by the way, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. And I always thought, well, okay, what he's saying is when you find the baby then this is what you're going to see. Uh, you will find the baby wrapped in cloths. In the King James, it says swaddling clothes. I like that language better. Uh, you will find the babe wrapped in strips of cloth in, in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, there's a historian by the name of Eusebius. He's, from, he's one of the older historians. He said there was a tower built outside of Bethlehem where these priestly shepherds would keep watch over their flocks at night. This, flower, this, tower, <laughs> flower, this tower was two stories tall. And in the top part of the tower, the shepherds would watch over the flocks, some of them. Now, there were other fields, obviously, and there were sheep and other fields, and there were shepherds in other fields. But this tower was called Migdal Idar. We see it also prophesied in Micah back in the Old Testament. And you... Tower of the flocks, that's the translation for Migdal Idar. Your time will come, you will again have the right to rule. Yes, the kingdom will be in Jerusalem as it was in the past. What's really interesting, super interesting, these priestly shepherds would bring uh, sheep who were about to give birth into the first floor of this tower, the tower of the flock, so that they might oversee the birthing of the lambs. Now, when a lamb was born, what you had to offer was, remember, you had to be a perfect sacrifice. And so these lambs would be born, and they would immediately wrap these lambs in strips of cloth. So they wouldn't get nicked, so they wouldn't be imperfect, and then disqualified from being sacrificed. They wrapped them in cloths. You're not going to believe this. Jim Teague, you're going to love it. Guess what? The undergarments, discarded undergarments of the high priests, of the priests. Really interesting. Uh, we talked about it. Not that Jim has undergarments that he discards. I'm not saying, no, it's not about Jim. Not about Jim. All right, so think about it. Jesus' mom, her name was Mary, visited Elizabeth. You'll recall that, right? Elizabeth was a cousin. Her husband, Elizabeth's husband, was a priest. What if? Again, I don't know it's true. It just seems logical to me. What if Elizabeth had given Mary some priestly, discarded undergarments of her husband? What if when Jesus was born, he was wrapped in priestly garments. And laid in a manger. Just like the lambs who were born to die. Fascinating. One more. Can I give you one more? You got time? It's almost time to be gone. I, I, I can close. No, okay, it's good. When you take the lamb to be sacrificed, they would put your family's name on the lamb. So that when you went back to get the sacrificed lamb, that you would get the lamb that you gave. 
You'll recall that when Jesus was on the cross, Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Now, in the Hebrew, it would be Yeshua Hanotzeri Thelemic Yahaduim. Yahaduim. So, well, they wouldn't always put the whole words. They would use the first letter of each noun. So it would be yod hev vav hev in the Hebrew, or Y-H-W-H, which is interesting because in English, those are the vowels, or those are the nouns of the name Yahweh. Wouldn't it be interesting, and just like God, to use Pilate to put his name on his sacrifice? I think it's interesting. Let's pray. Father, we don't put anything past you. We know that you can do anything you want. And while these last couple of things are conjecture, it's great to think about it because we know if you wanted to, you could have done that. And it does sound just like you. You predict things hundreds of years in advance and then they come true. The most important thing, and the Lord help us not lose sight, is that you gave a sacrifice just for us. Thank you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.